You're listening to the Yeshiva of Newark at IDT podcast. I'm your host and curator, Rabbi Aprom Kivalevich, and I hope you enjoy this episode. Forty years ago, this is Emeritus Rex with Rabbi Ruben Pupko. Hi, I'm Avram Kivalevich. I'm here with Rabbi Pupko from Montreal. Um, Rabbi Pupko, our second episode, but it's we can't ignore what's around us here. I can't. Uh, the The United States election is just around the corner. And as uh, many of the liberal uh, news media are saying, it's election season. It's not election day. It's all happening. And I, I guess you can't go into any Jewish place, masked or not, and not hear a debate or a discussion about what will happen if it looks like, as, as all the polls indicate, that uh, President Trump uh, will only have one term. What's going to happen in uh, or the progress that's happening here at Israel, Trump is better for the Jews, etc. Uh, so we here in the United States are are, are tumbling over this, um, and it's all part of the I guess the chaos that's uh, become part and parcel of the of the of the pandemic chaos in a way. Now I know you're up there in the north uh, in, in Canada, and uh, we know that the interconnectedness between the countries is very strong. Uh, what happens, of course, in the United States is, 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 is front page news everywhere, and especially there's a relationship between Canada and the United States, which is strong. And, and, and clearly there's, 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 there's factors that our presidency is going to, is going to make a difference. I'm wondering, pulling back from the election, but using the election as, as, as a test case, do you see here and in general the Montreal community, the Canadian communities, really feel part and parcel with the communities, the North American Orthodox Jewish communities here in the United States? Or do you feel that there's still, despite the fact that there is some, uh, uh, you know, I guess osmosis and, and, and there's some absorbing, there's still a separate, distinct Canadian identity. And yeah, okay, we can, we can survive whatever's going on in the United States. Um, we're our own uh, people, or does the borders not matter when it comes to you know, the Jewish world? And Canada and Montreal and Toronto might just be cities in Pennsylvania or upstate New York as, as far as as we, <laughs> the tribe, is concerned. I'm going to add one more thing before I let you uh, get onto your soapbox on this, is that, you know, I, I, I'm really, in a way, I've only, I was a rub for only a year and a half, and, and barely, I barely escaped unscathed. And, and we were sort of similar in our backgrounds in, in, in high school, and here you are, almost, as I said, 40 years of, and so many years there. Would you also speak about the fact that maybe the being in Canada might have something to do with that. Uh, you know, uh, that perhaps the life is different for a rub there. So I gave you a lot uh, to chew on. It's unrehearsed. Rabbi Pupko, the mic is yours. It's um, a lot to talk about. Okay. I want to talk a little bit about Donald Trump because it's so fascinating and relevant. <laughs> you know, um, this is an enormously divisive issue in, in, in American Jewish life. When I say that, uh, the, it's really, really not true because the Jews who live with each other on either side of the divides we've created only know people who vote exactly like themselves. In other words, 
the non-Orthodox community in the U.S. is almost monolithically uh, pro-Biden. Uh, he will enjoy close to 80 percent of uh, uh, of the Jewish vote, um, meaning overwhelmingly, uh, overwhelm almost unanimously, uh, he will be supported by non-Orthodox Jews in America. I mean, we know this; these are the voting patterns that go back a very long time when Obama ran uh, the first time. Uh, in, in 2008, he got 79 or 80 percent of the Jewish vote. Uh, and let's keep that number in context. Uh, the Jewish community gave Obama 80 percent support. The gay community gave him less support than the Jewish community. And uh, and so uh, uh, a, a Jewish Republicans are not, are not you know, uh, are maybe well known like Sheldon Adelton, but they're not very numerous. Um, I mean, this goes back a very long time. In, in, in World War II, during uh, uh, FDR's time, before World War II, uh, the, the joke in New York was, there's three worlds, this world, the next world, and Roosevelt. And, um, and that's how Jews always voted. Jews always voted that way because uh, uh, there was a sense that the Democratic Party embodied the values uh, that are Jewish values, the values of, uh, of charity and compassion. Uh, also, it had to do with the fact that Roosevelt uh, was the first to bring uh, a significant number of Jewish members into his cabinet. And, uh, and although his record during World War II is, uh, to put it diplomatically, spotty as it relates to uh, Jewish immigration and intervention for the Jewish communities, uh, he enjoyed widespread support, widespread support amongst the Jews. And that continued for one and two and three and four generations of American Jews, both uh, democratic. Biden, now, the question is, why don't, what, what's the difference between Orthodox Jews and non-Orthodox Jews, let's be broadly when it comes to Trump? Orthodox Jews are overwhelmingly supporting Donald Trump. Um, and uh, and it, it, one of the reasons is that um, Orthodox Jews are more likely to vote on Jewish issues first and foremost. Non-Orthodox voters have a basket of concerns. And therefore, Israel predominates uh, as a reason in, uh, for voting for, for Trump in the Orthodox community because of what Trump has done in terms of moving the embassy to Jerusalem, uh, recognizing the Golan, tearing up the Iran deal, and more recently facilitating peace agreements with the UAE and, uh, and Bahrain and other countries possibly in the pipeline. So uh, he's done so much for Israel in a very tangible way. So how could you not support him? If, if that's your paramount concern. Um, the, uh, those on the left say, well, how can you vote, vote for someone whose character is, is odious, who is uh, uh, who possibly uh, uh, empowers uh, those who, uh, who hate us passionately, like white supremacists, by not sufficiently denouncing them? Again, I'm, not, I, I'm giving you their words. I'm not telling you what, what I believe about this. You know, on the left, they say, you know, he's odious, he, he, he powers the right, uh, the white supremacists and all of this. Uh, others will say, listen, yeah, he's good for Israel in the short term, but in the long term, he hurts Israel. He's made Israel a divisive uh, issue, a partisan issue in American politics. Most young Americans know nothing about Israel. What they do know is that Trump embraces Israel. And if Trump is Satan, as, there, as, as many young people believe that, Israel is, in fact, tainted uh, by his embrace for a whole young generation. Uh, others will tell you, you know, uh, um, what's good for Israel is a strong America. 
an American that has clout and credibility, and Trump damages American credibility and American stature, and that in the long term is damaging uh, to Israel. And they'll say his detractors also say uh, he puts Israel in conversations which a true friend of Israel never would. Uh, for instance, when uh, uh, when Khashoggi was murdered in the Saudi embassy in Istanbul and Trump was challenged as to why he persists in having good relations uh, with the Saudis, one of the reasons he gave is because they get along with Israel. And, uh, and a true friend of Israel, they would, his detractors would say, would never put Israel in that conversation. So again, but I, I think more fundamentally, the real issue is that non-Orthodox Jews in America believe in American politics without cynicism. And they believe the government should reflect the values that they aspire to. Orthodox Jews don't think that way. Orthodox Jews are cynical. They don't believe that the government embodies values. All it is is a vehicle for interests. And, um, and they believe, on one level, they probably believe, well, what's the difference between Trump and, and, and Biden and Bush? They're, none of these people represent really our values. None of them are holy. So, you know, what are you talking about values? You know, who cares what his values are, his character is? They don't see government as an embodiment of our hopes, aspirations, and values. They see government as nothing but a tool of interest. Their interests, other people's competing interests. And therefore, things like character and even rhetoric don't count as much as what did he deliver? Uh, but again, non-Orthodox Jews have a very different idea of government, a very different idea of government that should embody values. So uh, let, let me just interrupt you for a second here, and 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 you are you are giving us a, a real great. You're, you're tap dancing around my question, but you're giving us a great. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I don't <laughs> tap dancing. It's more like a ballroom, um, Mikhail uh, combination ballroom dancing, Mikhail Barishnikov pirouette. Right. But I would say that uh, just to interject here, for people who are you know listening here, uh, yes, that's correct. Uh, but part of the reason is because the non-Orthodox don't necessarily have a very easy other value aspect to embrace. Oh, no, you're absolutely right. There's no question that you're right. That means re- politics have become a new religion. Right. Whereas once you get rid of, I mean, the that, void so left it. behind, the void yes. left behind when you abandon tradition is filled, and often with silly things. And I would argue there's no question that Many people on each either side of the divide take this much too seriously. People need to have a certain balance in their life and understand that no matter who's president, they're not, it's not there forever. Our values are certainly more enduring and more valuable. Our families are more valuable. And, uh, and, and, and again, politics has become for many, for many, the new religion. And uh, you saw that. I mean, I think you mentioned it last week about the, you know, the the, the eulogy that the October eulogy for Ruth Bader Ginsburg, or whatever. I mean, it, it's become a new religion, and and that is certainly indicative of a lack of balance in life, to put it nicely. Now, now I know you're, you're, you're I'm dancing around the candidates. Let, let me get to candidates. You're right. I'm, I'm dancing around. Canadian Jews were pretty much the same as American Jews when it came to voting. They voted liberal for many years, many generations. Again, for the same reason. Oh, the values liberal government, uh, immigrant, whatever it was. Um, then Stephen Harper came in uh, as Prime Minister of Canada, became a, a great advocate for the state of Israel, and there was a shift in Canadian Jewish voting patterns, a significant shift. Jews on the right feel the shift 
was far from sufficient, but it was a very substantial thing. Uh, when Erwin Cutler, the great human rights activist, who was the member of parliament from what we call in Canada my own writing, didn't win the Jewish vote the last couple of times. He lost it because Harper was prime minister and the conservative. Cutler was elected for the Jewish writing because of non-Jewish votes and the non-Jewish parts of, of the writing. He was Jewish. Uh, Ir- Irwin was a Irwin Jew. Irwin is, was, and is Jewish. A great Jew. A traditional yeah. Jew. A very good Jew. And, but again, because he was running on the liberal ticket, he didn't win the Jewish vote. He won his seat. He never lost an election. But he, he lost the Jewish vote. He lost the Jewish vote because Canadian Jews, unlike American Jews, shifted their, uh, their party loyalty to the conservatives when the conservatives stepped up for Israel. American Jews did not shift their loyalty to the Republicans because George W. Bush was a great friend of Israel. They didn't shift. Uh, they didn't shift when elements of the Democratic Party uh, began to become very vocal detractors of the state of Israel. Uh, they didn't shift. Canadian Jews shifted. I'm not telling you all of them, obviously, but there was a significant shift in, in, in Canadian Jewish voting pattern because of this, because again, Canadian Jews, for a whole host of reasons, are more traditional Jewishly than American Jews. Uh, they're more characterized by the post-war immigration uh, than, than is American Jewry, whatever it is. There are many different reasons. Canada never uh, had this idea of a melting pot where assimilation was necessary. Quilt. They the had quilt. A mosaic. A mosaic. A mosaic. I, used to hear, I, heard, I used to hear it as a quilt. Quilt, right. And right. had all different aspects in yeah. the Right. Whatever it is, you know, the Canadian Jews are more traditional and it shows up in all statistics of affiliation, uh, intermarriage, everything else. So, I, I, um, you know, it's somewhat similar, you know, now that you're saying this, uh, I'm sorry for interjecting, to what used to be in England, right? It's, right. It's like England or South Africa. Right. right. Yeah. And, and exactly. remember, you, you guys were a province much longer than we were. Like, we, we, we're the ones that revolted here, right? We're the ones that had the uh, our revolt in, in Canada. Until I we are a very passive people. We don't rebel. <laughs> we in Canada, we'll take almost anything without complaining. Yeah, it's really quite remarkable. And and and, and really, this this leads to you know a, a, we don't honk horns. I don't know if you ever noticed this. Nobody honks their horn. I don't even know why Canadian cars have horns. <laughs> we don't like to complain. Yeah. Well, remember you were the <laughs> rabbi. You were the rabbi in Oshawa, where uh, which explains, by the way, your other question: Why I'm still a rabbi. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, when I, let me just tell everybody what I mean by Oshawa. I think Oshawa was like sort of the little Detroit of uh, of Canada for a yes, while. Yes, the center of G- General Motors. Yes, yeah, GM there. So uh, you know, we're talking about producing cars. But yeah, that was one of my questions about you know how someone like yourself, who's a, clearly a, you know a personality and a very interesting fellow. Well, the Canadian Jews have a very high tolerance for rabbinic mediocrity. Okay. Well said. And, and well said, and, and we know that that's not true. And I can give you a list of names if you like. <laughs> Off the air, we'll, we'll get. <laughs> but, but, but but clearly, yeah. So you're right. So in other words, they're more. They have a, a which is which is fascinating. In other words, a J Street would never arise in Toronto or Montreal. The idea of a very strong liberal streak. Uh, it, oh, listen, it, it it would, but it wouldn't. It would. I mean, we have idiots everywhere. I mean, there's a Jewish, there's a JVT in McGill. I mean, there are, this element does exist. But again, they're much more significantly marginalized. And so therefore, even though, you know, so Harper, I know Harper himself is no longer the prime minister, um, but, but, but did, did Harper, 
develop was there a change in in an attitude towards the state of Israel and to yeah, Harper was general as that Har- that lasted past Harper. It, Harper changed everything because the, the Liberal Party before Harper, under a previous Prime Minister uh, John Crickend, was much more critical of Israel than is the present Liberal government. It means Harper changed the dialogue in Canada. It means the Liberals are much better in Israel than they than they used to be. Liberals will tell you that change already began before Harper, after Kenton was gone, uh, and, and there was a different Liberal Prime Minister for a short period who began to change the way Liberals spoke and acted towards Israel, and, and, and there's great validity uh, to that argument. But there's no question that the... Um, the basic criteria for what it means to be pro-Israel uh, changed dramatically because of Stephen Harper and the Trudeau government has not significantly altered the Harper approach to Israel. We still get support from Canada UN. What we miss with Harper is the passionate rhetorical embrace of Israel, uh, which Trudeau is, 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 hasn't delivered, and we, nobody expected him to. But the, the policies themselves are pretty good. I mean, they haven't really changed. As I know that, you know, when I, I remember when Quebec, um, I guess it was in the early 70s, became radically French and right. you couldn't you, you couldn't travel to Montreal and, and speak English anymore. Mm. And, yeah, right. and it was and we, and, and we know it was sort of like a, there was a militancy and the, and the from Jews there, especially I know were really nervous about the changes that would occur, right. uh, the demands that would be made in the schools. Um, and, and, and we've heard through the years that it wasn't so easy to navigate. Is it now easier, not just, and this is really the question, is part of what people have argued against Trump is, it's not all about Israel. Let's talk about what's better, you know, for the Jewish community here. Has, has that changed in Canada as well? Now that they're better uh, attuned towards what it means, the state of Israel, has that filtered down and made the relationships in Jewish issues? You talked about one last week about, you know, opening shoals and things. Have you found that the, the, the attitude has, has softened and it, it, there isn't that much friction anymore and, and things work much easier in the, between the, in, in the Canadian, uh, from the Canadian government, from the city municipal right. government and, 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 and your community? Listen, there's a couple, there's, it's not a simple question because Quebec is different than the rest of Canada, but I'll talk about Quebec first. There's no question in the 1970s when uh, nationalism was on the table, when I say nationalism, I mean there was a serious threat of Quebec uh, going its own way and breaking from Canada. And there was a couple of referendums uh, that, that that were defeated. That many Jews were nervous about what what had happened, what would happen. Uh, yeah, again, like in many places, Quebec had a history of anti-Semitism uh, in, in the past. It was a very church-centric province, and uh, the Catholic Church in the old days certainly uh, were far from our friends. Although that has changed radically, in those days the church was certainly not our friend, and uh, and there was the sense that, and also again, we, we we know our history that nationalism isn't always uh, an inviting uh, uh, ethic for for, for for Jewish communities, and nationalism can create a hostility toward towards minorities, uh, and especially to Jews, and, and Jews were nervous. Um, Listen, there's a long, complicated history in Quebec. We've been here a couple hundred years. I mean, it's a long, complicated history. Part of that history is that Jewish immigrants to Quebec, because there was a confessional school system, were uh, driven into the English school system. We became Anglophones because 
the French schools were Catholic and, and, and were religious Catholic. So we were diverted into the English system by their design is the excuse we in Montreal always give for our, uh, for our attachment or association with the Anglophone community. The Jewish community is not an Anglophone community in Montreal. We do not, we are not the standard bearers of English rights in Montreal. We are a diverse community. Uh, 30% at least is French speaking, meaning wow. immigrants from North Africa, Morocco, and elsewhere. We do not, we do not, I mean, listen, many Ashkenazi Jews over the age of 70 would still say, yeah, we're English rights. Most Jews in, in Montreal today, however, are not are not intertwined with the English rights movement. We are certainly in favor of staying in Canada, certainly. But we don't posture ourselves as an Anglophone community. We posture ourselves as a diverse community, which we are. And the fears that were expressed in those days uh, when the separatist movement was very strong haven't been realized. The reality is that the Parti Québécois, which is no longer in power and is now not doing very well, either in the National Assembly or in the polls, the standard bearers of Quebec separatism, uh, when they were in power, were not bad to the Jews. They weren't. And in fact, they were actually quite good to the Jews. For the same reason Republicans appoint African-Americans to the Supreme Court and to National Security Advisor and Secretary of State like Condoleezza Rice and Clarence Thomas and uh, and others uh, who exemplify that. In other words, it's a way for the party Québécois to signal the moderate Quebecers that they're not an intolerant people, so they use the Jew as the as the way of showing their tolerance. The way Republicans use African Americans in the states, we know you're not going to vote for us, but look, we're not racist. They say to the moderate whites. I mean, that's just it's an old political trick. But whatever, for whatever in, in reason or or thought, the party Quebec was about it. Right now, we have the CAC government, which is which is not a separatist government, but hard, but certainly has. Uh, you know, uh, uh, certainly um, viewed by many as ultimately being a nationalist party, uh, hasn't been bad to the Jews either. So, um, so those fears were not realized, and things are very different than they were in the seventies and eighties. So the so, so I guess you know the the other question I was asking you is that, and I'll just I'll just get straight to the point. You know, you're I don't know what type of services you're having, but obviously you have your Zoom shiurim and your shul community is very strong. Is what I described at the beginning of the show true in Canada as well. Are you guys coughing over the election? Is is are you guys speaking about this? Is it, is, is, is it making a difference? The conversations I hear, convers- listen, there are all different kinds of Jews, and there are Jews who are pro-Trump and Jews who are pro-Biden in Canada. The Jew, but but if you if you go if you're a soul goer, <laughs> the conversation you hear is, I can't believe American Jews aren't voting for Trump. Look how good he's been to us. So, which is interesting in terms of the fact that, you know, um, but why you would almost say you're in a different country, right? Um, and, and, and yet what's, what's playing in America is still really pro- being projected on the screen there. Oh, for um, sure. Right? And, 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 and is that, so answered the point that I was saying before, is that because in some way uh, many of your people are transplants or is it many, or is it because ultimately you see yourself as part of the larger Jewish community, which is mostly American. Is that, no, American? no it's, I don't think it's either. I, I believe it's because America matters in ways that Canada never will. The President of the United States matters in a way that the Prime Minister of Canada never will. And it is very consequential who is, who is sitting in the Oval Office. It's very consequential for the world 
for the state of Israel and ultimately for the Jewish people. It is not nearly as consequential who's sitting in Ottawa. So, so, so even though you guys, so you almost have the best in a way of both worlds. Like you're able to live in a, in, in a country which is devoid of a lot of the, the anger and chaos and, 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 you know, really shouting and screaming. Again, you're right. America's definitely devolved in the last four years into Argentina in many ways in terms of, you know, uh, not just because there's a, a buffoon in the White House, but also just in general, the, you know, the, 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 the tabloid, uh, journalism, the, 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 the scent of scandal, like the, the lack of dignity, right? But, but you, you're sitting there in Canada. You don't really, you don't feel that type of assault at all. You don't feel like you're living in a, in right. a madhouse. Right. We're, we're, we're the guys in the cheap seats. We get to watch and, uh, and we don't get the splatter from the med wrestling. That's right. Right. But, but do you, as a, as the rabbi there, do you feel somewhat, you know, again, like you, you can't, you know, I'm sure the rabbis in your position, let's say in West Hempstead or in, or in Teaneck and other places are going to be asked and say, this is why I think you should vote. You can't do that from where you, from, from your perch, right? I can do it, but it's of no consequence. The only That's per- right. The only person in my show who votes in the American elections is me. Um, you, you the, retain, uh, you've retained your U.S. citizenship. Of course. Yeah. Uh-huh. And, um, and I'm also a Canadian. I, I, I hold to a Oh, and by the way, you're, 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 so are you, um, are you voting as a member of the, the state that spawned you, the, the essential no, state? No, I'm, I'm not, I, I'm, the last place I voted was in New York. So I'm a registered New York voter, meaning not, not nearly as consequential as would it be in Pennsylvania. It's not going to make a difference anyway. You, we know New York isn't up for Biden. You're That's what I'm saying. But Pennsylvania, where I was born, would have been. That's right. Biden. You would have been something. Yeah. Yeah. Been, yeah. Now been. I'm just a meaningless voter. Right. Uh, so I, I don't, yeah. So it's more like, would you be willing to state here who you're voting for? The right to see secret ballot is is a legally protected right. I would not do that. You would you would not reveal. I'm, I'm, I'm deeply offended. You <laughs> of course not. I <laughs> see. It's an inconsequential vote. That means I want to tell you something. First, I'll tell you something. I'll tell you how old I am. The first time I voted, first time I voted was the year I turned 18. It was in 1976. Nobody remembers this. All of the Jews, right wing and left wing, all voted for Jimmy Carter, although they'll deny it later. And people forget why. Because Gerald Ford, right, the man who uh, had been vice president to Nixon, uh, ordered a reassessment, exact words he used, of relations with Israel. He was upset about stuff, whatever it was. And everybody ran to the Democratic Party. Every Jew. That was the only time uh, I voted Democratic. Let's see. Well, uh, I, I guess, you know, as, as that 18 year old, um, uh, you know, youth who was uh, optimistic and given your first chance, especially since you were so powerless in Marius Row where you were a prisoner and you had no rights whatsoever. <laughs> sure, right. I'm sure. And then that, I voted for Ronald. But then I voted. Then, yeah. But then I voted for Ronald Reagan. Yes. Well, you know, like I said, <laughs> I have first never, Senate, if, if memory serves, the 1970. Uh, James Buckley was running for senator against Daniel Patrick Moynihan. I was voting in the New York election, 1976. And I, and although Moynihan had been great to Israel, was great to Israel in the UN and, and Moynihan was fantastic. Uh, I voted for James Buckley as a true, uh, as a true loyal Republican. Wow. Wow. I see this. But, so I, but I, yeah, but I, but I, yeah, so, but, but I, I had seen Mont Moynihan at a rally. I don't remember Soviet jury, and I went over and thanked him for his support. So I felt 
my gratitude had been sufficiently expressed and therefore I could vote against it. Yeah, I really don't think there's ever been anyone who has really, um, maybe Nikki Haley in some way, but really displayed that type of nobility that he that he showed as the UN ambassador to the UN and, and other things. Also a real, a real intellectual, you know, Moynihan, um, yeah. you know, Moynihan was not a pseudo intellectual. He was a real intellectual and, and also was able to, to pair that with, 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 with an activism that was fueled by his intelligence. And uh, that, that's really something which is, has been missing. And he was a man of great integrity and courage as well. hundred percent, hundred percent. Yerbukamoisa eitzala umosa olam. So, well, I guess this is a, sort of your, um, your our, our, our political take here, and, and I guess you're I- indicating uh, what, what is happening. Um, let's just let me ask you another hypothetical uh, from where you're sitting. Um, uh, all the polls indicate that uh, this is Biden's election, unless there's some incredible late October surprise. You know, Nate Silver and the 538s and everything. And no one's give, is giving Trump a, a scintilla of a chance of actually retaining office. Um, so I, I think we are, I think we have to mentally be ready for Biden of Kamala Harris, uh, running this country. Do you see there, are you, does that bother you? Do you see some issues uh, arising? Do you think that there's going to be more daylight, and and I know as as, a, as one of the great advocates for the state of Israel, are, are you worried about this? I, and I'm, not try, I'm, I'm not trying to just try to figure out who you're voting for because I'm just saying. No, 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 no. But here's the question. Here's the question about Biden. If the polls are correct and nothing changes and Biden's president, um, here's the question you have to ask: Is not so much which Democratic Party is going to be in the Oval Office? Will it be the old-fashioned Democratic Party that is maybe not the greatest boosters of Israel, but still generally uh, supportive of Israel? Or will it be the new Democratic Party of Bernie Sanders, Ilhan Omar, and Rashida Tlaib, and, and who else? That's the question. Is it the uh, is it is is a traditional uh, Clinton kind of Democrat, or is it uh, something radically different? I don't think that's the only question. That's an important part of the question. The other part of the question is. Will the Biden administration be frozen in time? Will they act and pretend as if nothing has changed since Obama left office? And what I mean by that is the following. The world has changed dramatically in four years. Let me put it a little bit differently. The changes that were unfolding for a while were able to express themselves in a very dramatic fashion or have expressed themselves in a dramatic fashion. What I mean. The conventional wisdom on the Middle East has now been clearly debunked. Conventional wisdom was nobody nobody in the Middle East would talk or have relations with Israel until there was a Palestinian resolution to the Palestinian problem. That clearly isn't true. That clearly isn't true. Uh, You know, the the, the peace processes of the Obama era always said this and continued to say it. Now that that's been clearly debunked, that the Palestinian question is not at the center of Middle Eastern politics. And in Israel enjoys warm relations with Gulf countries in the absence of any resolution. And in fact, leaders of the Gulf countries are saying things about the Palestinian movement and the Palestinian leadership that in the old days you only heard from members of the Likud party. Uh, and, and, and so the question is, will Biden act as if none of that happened? Will he continue to act as if the Palestinian question 
is the central issue. Uh, the other issue, Iran. Obama felt that the deal would, have, would facilitate Iran, in his words, getting right with the world. That clearly did not happen. And that realization is not just due to Trump pulling out. That was clear beforehand by using all of their money to facilitate other uh, you know, radical groups uh, in Lebanon and Syria and in Yemen and, and everywhere else in Iraq. So it's clear that the deal with Iran did nothing to moderate Iranian behavior. So will Biden act as if that hasn't happened or will he simply act as if Obama left office yesterday and try to resurrect uh, 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 the, the Iran deal as if the premise hasn't in any way been damaged by what has happened subsequent to the deal, which clearly it has. Enrichment is, is now at a dangerous level. But again, there was no evidence that the aspirations of the Obama administration about the impact of that deal on Iranian thinking were in any way realized. Those aspirations have not been realized. But will they pretend that it's still possible? So it's not so much which Democratic Party ends up in the Oval Office is as much as will the Biden administration simply pick up from the day after Obama or will the Biden administration understand how profoundly some of the ideas that dominated the Obama administration, will they, will they, will, will they act as, as if they understand that those ideas have, have been debunked in, in years subsequent to Obama leaving office? That's the question. Well, again, I, I, so I'm going to actually connect something we said before and then wind this up. We talked about our both of our um, admiration for uh, Daniel Patrick Moynihan. Moynihan actually uh, took a step up from the world of academia when he became uh, Nixon's, uh, I don't know if it was his national security advisor, but he was, he was someone very close to Nixon. Nixon actually, uh, you know, despite, uh, I don't know if you would call him odious, but definitely a, a, a sick individual, Nixon. You might remember we compared our our, our beloved Menachem in the high school to Richard Nixon in the <laughs> play. You know, I don't know which one of them was uh, was was more was, was was a more normal person. But we realized that uh, Nixon was uh, was a very disturbed person. Um, but you know, he was obviously a. a, a, a a, a fine mind, but what, what really caught, in my mind, made him stand out is that he picked great advisors. He, whatever you want to say about Kissinger, whether he's as, as brilliant as, as people say or not, he was an A-lister in brains. So it was Moynihan. And, and Nixon, despite all his, you know, his narrowness, said, I want to have the smartest people talking to me, the people who really have a global understanding of the world. If Biden, who is really, come on, Biden might not be ready for the dementia ward, like 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 the Trump people are saying, but I, I don't believe his mind and his guts are going to be so essential. If Biden gets the right advisors, the people who see things in the Poconian sense, seeing that things have, have altered, then I think we're okay. I think if Biden kowtows, and, and, and I don't know if Kamala Harris is going to play a great role, but my, my, I have a sense that they're going to bring in a lot of the Obama people because, you know, they've been waiting. Uh, maybe even Michelle Obama in some way, in some role, because she's, they, they clearly want her back, you know, maybe even to be the next president, possibly, you know, to somehow, uh, continue. So I, I, I I'm a little bit, I don't have much hope that there's going to be, 
you know, if he brings in people from academia, people who see the world in a different way, who don't have a horse in the race, then I think things will be positive because they'll say, look, Trump was a buffoon, but the world has changed. Let's go with the new reality, the new real politic, et cetera. But, it, but, but, but they might be just bringing in some of, as we know, the very extreme thinkers. And, I, and that would probably not bode well. Would you agree with that? I mean, that's my sense. So you say it's Biden. You're you're right. I mean, if you look, I I think you're right. I think you're right that um, that many of the people who had second tier positions, the Obama administration will come back in the Biden administration as first tier. And that, as I said, the question of which Democratic Party shows up in the Oval Office, whether it's Bernie Sanders or or, or or Biden or Bill Clinton type of thinking about Israel is, is one question. But the real, more, I think the more important question I ask is, will these people from the Obama administration understand that many of the things they took for granted simply aren't true and have been proven to be untrue, and that their hopes for the world haven't been realized and they need to take a different approach? For instance, a simple question. Uh, Biden has promised to restore uh, relations with the Palestinian Authority. All right. He wants to talk to them. Let the embassy open again in Washington. Will that be an unconditional unilateral move? Or will Biden insist on getting something in return for that? What what will he get from the Palestinians? If he wants to reopen the Iran deal, will it be completely unchanged? Or now that the Americans should have learned what the Iranian regime will persist in doing, will they change the terms or attempt to change the terms of the Iran deal? What What will happen? Excuse me. The other, I mean, Biden is not pulling the embassy out of Jerusalem. That kind of reversal won't happen. Are you question, sure? Because I think it's, I think it's, it's never going to, it's not going to happen. Yeah. No, it's not going to, he may, he, he would never have moved it, but to move it out is impossible. Um, we, we know that Biden has, and you remember the hissy fit that he threw when, when, when they, when they opened up a show in a froth or something like that, they opened Yeah, listen. Right, uh, he got so upset about it, it was a slap in the face. I'm okay, well, yeah. That kind of stuff we've seen over the years, we saw it with the first George Bush, we saw it under Republicans, Yes, we saw it with Obama, the worst thing was, you know, the last weeks of the administration with the vote at the UN, and and, and again, the rhetoric around who was advocating against the Iran deal, I mean, there were some very bad moments uh, under Obama, people also forget how bad things used to be even, I mean, listen, after... uh, after Israel bombed the Osirak nuclear reactor in Iraq, what, 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 what even Reagan's administration said. So, I mean, this is not new stuff. Yeah, I, I think over there again, you know, we can we can talk about history of the seventies. I think over there, you might have had a was it James Baker who was the uh, Baker was terrible under yeah, the first right, but I think Reagan himself was very happy about the the, the bomb. I agree with you a hundred percent. Yeah, J- yeah, yeah. Yes. Reagan took a couple more jelly beans and said, hey, 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 "Those Jews, they did it." Yeah, no, I'm sure you're right. Yeah. Let me just say, let's just finish off with this. You see that, you know, we know, and this is where I was going with this, Biden and Obama did not like Netanyahu. And I think in the four years of Trump, Netanyahu has has sort of like melded himself with Trump in many ways, right? With Trump seemingly, and again, I might have to eat my words, but I doubt it, with Trump seemingly gone, do you think that will now bring in a change of, of, of government in Israel as well? And maybe... Benny Gantz can can have a, a better relationship uh, with Biden and his and his minions. I, I don't know. I really don't know. I think that uh, 
you're right. Many of the people who in, in, in Biden administration will start off on a very negative footing with people. Uh, he did not get along with those guys. They were angry when he went to Congress and spoke publicly against the Iran deal when Obama was, was president. They harbor great resentment against Bibi. They view Bibi as a Republican and a, 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 a Republican party. And, um, and again, as much as Bibi goes out of his way uh, to try to, uh, to alter that perception, uh, there's no question uh, the Democratic Party in Washington looks today at BB as if he was a Republican. And that's not good for Israel because worse, fact, you know, because no matter what, no matter how great a Republican president will be for Israel, Republicans are not in the office forever. And it's better for Israel if both parties support Israel. There are many in the Jewish community on the right who have already written off the Democratic Party because of Rashida Tlaib, Bill and Omar, see or whatever. And I think that's a mistake. You don't write off a party that will win elections. And you have to try your best to, uh, to maintain relations with both sides of the aisle. And, uh, and Bibi has tried to do that. But again, you know, events took over. The Iran deal happened and Bibi had to do what he did, and which had an enormous impact, by the way. People should not understate the impact. I know somebody who worked in Bibi's office and I was talking to him about the relations that Israel now enjoys with Gulf countries. He said to me, no one knows this, but the real thing that changed, why? Everyone says the Saudis or, you know, uh, the UAE, Bahrain, they all have relations with Israel because the common threat of Iran, whatever. No. What changed was when they saw Bibi get up in Congress and speak against the Iran deal, while Obama was down the block in the White House, he had the guts to do that. The phone, he said, would, wouldn't, didn't, didn't stop ringing in the Gulf country. They saw a man of courage and strength and wow. determination. The, the BB's, the estimation of BB in, in, in the Arab world rose and rose dramatically when they saw him do that. Wow. And, uh, and, and, and that was an important moment. And American Jews misunderstood that moment. And, um, and, and so there's no question it's better for Israel if it, if it enjoys bipartisan support. Uh, conservative Jews in America and written off the Democratic Party. I, I hope they're wrong. And, uh, and there's no question that Biden will come in with a history uh, with BB. That's not positive. And, 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 and like you say, sometimes history and optics really mean a lot. And I think the idea of that, you know, that cold handshake, I don't know, between, you know, BB and, and Obama is still very, very, uh, uh, strong in people's minds. Uh, and the other, and, and the other scary thing is. First-term presidents are a lot easier to deal with than second-term presidents because first-term presidents need you to get to win the next time. Biden's coming in; it'll be his first term, but he's not a first term because he's not running again. Presidents who aren't going to what? He's not going to run again. Of course not. I don't think he's again. I would say in Vegas, the odds of him even surviving the first two years. Right. He's not going to. He's not going to run again. We don't even know if he's going to be. You know. He's a one-termer. He's a lame duck on day one. Maybe. And <laughs> uh, and lame ducks are bad for us. We like people who need us. Yeah. And and, and I and again, I think Kamala Harris um, um, is really going to play an incredibly important role. And I think that's really who, uh, listen, who should be lining up with. Listen, there's no question that she's married to a Jewish guy. Anyone who's married to a Jewish man loves the Jewish people because Jewish men 
are fantastic people. Kamala's married. I didn't realize Kamala was married to a Jew. I guess I didn't yes, do my Kamala's research. Married to a Jew, yeah. I didn't realize that. We're yeah. everywhere. Well, on that, you know, listen, on that note, I would just say to end with the, the, the point that I think you were hinting at, uh, Rabbi Bookfeld, is that there is something about dignity and there is something about um, nobility. And if America is still so, quote unquote, leading the world, despite Biden's shortcomings, there still is a sense of dignity, a sense of nobility, a sense of learning from pain. Whether you think it's, uh, whether you think it's really, uh, uh, true coming, authentic coming from him or not, but hear him saying, I was wrong. Hear him saying, I dealt with the death of my, of my, my wife. Hearing him saying that I can feel the pain of other people during this pandemic, which the Ravona Shalom should take away from us, uh, in, in some way and, and we should work through. I think that's going to be better in many ways for the world that there's someone there who is not who they don't perceive as a confrontational devil, but someone who does do something to restore. And I think that calming the the sea will help everywhere across the board, even though you're not going to see the results immediately. Anyway, that's my two cents, although I can't, I, I'm not voting, so I don't really have a, a choice. I can't really say who I want, but, uh, you know, I just, I want to have a good program to be able to, to deal with us. So <laughs> it'll be exciting. So thank you, Rabbi Putko, for giving you. your insight. And hopefully next time uh, uh, we'll have more of Emeritus Rex. Thanks for joining us for another episode from the Yeshiva of Newark at IDT Podcast. Be sure to subscribe on your favorite podcast app so you don't miss a single episode.